Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Over the past year, more than 11,000 migrants have arrived in Chicago, and the city continues to struggle to find places for them to stay and meet their needs. Meanwhile, volunteers, advocates, and nonprofits have stepped up to do what they can to fill in the gaps. And that's everything from legal aid workshops to finding blankets to providing mobile showers. A team of WBEZ reporters recently embedded in and around the 12th District Police Station, where some asylum seekers are sleeping. They wanted to get a closer look at the migrant experience and the network of Chicagoans who have stepped up to help. Joining us are WBEZ politics reporters Kristen Schorsch, Mariah Wolfel, and Metro reporter Claudia Morrell. Now, the three of you, along with our colleague Tessa Weinberg, you were all embedded on the near west side. So just break it down for us. Who stayed where and what exactly did you all set out to learn? Kristen, I'll go to you first. So I um, centered myself at New Life Centers, which is a nonprofit in Little Village. They've got a big food pantry. Um, they um, partner with a non- another nonprofit to have like a mobile shower station set up out in front of them on 27th Street so people can come and take a private shower. They've got a basement full of clothes, donated new. You can come and get a coffee. You can come and get a pastry. Uh, they were providing meals for a long time, too, in um, in the shelters in the police districts. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where I spent my day. What about you, Mariah? Yeah, and um, I'll, I'll speak for Tessa, too. Tessa was kind of at the 12th district. That was like the core of where we, as you said, kind of um, camped ourselves for the day. And Tessa was in and around the tents that have been set up by migrants who prefer to sleep in tents as opposed to city shelters or the district police station because it allows for more privacy, more freedom. They can keep their belongings with them. So she was there kind of, you know, in the 12th district, uh, you know, at the, at that tent um, community. Mm-hmm. And then I was down the road at Instituto del Progreso Latino, which does many, many things. They are doing donation drop-offs on Fridays they're doing kind of um, legal aid clinics on Fridays at the 12th district where mm-hmm. they go and try to get people set up with a citizenship, you know, uh, appointment. And then I shadowed an asylum seeker named Joanna who was meeting with her caseworker that day and then also meeting with a citizenship attorney. So she spent like three to four hours that morning yeah. talking through those processes before going to a job at a, you know, her shift at a factory. And we'll hear more about uh, Joanna's story a little bit later. And Claudia, I'm curious what you spent the day doing. Yeah. So for this story, my job was the government response. So I met up with a local alderman, Alderman Byron Sigcho Lopez at the 12th district police station. Um, and to kind of just get a sense of what it was like on a daily basis, because this was just one police station of several across the city where migrants have been staying. And so we uh, met outside. It was a really hot day. It was uh, that day where it was 90 degrees outside. Oh, yeah. And so outside, there was just this massive crowd. And I think the thing that shocked me the most was how many kids there were. Uh, So it was a lot of kids playing outside. There were people doing laundry. And then when you went inside the station, it was like eerily quiet. Mm. And you'd see um, like blankets and pillows stacked up against the walls. And then um, there was a janitor who was mopping the floor. And the alderman said that this is something that they do every day, that they have to pack up their stuff in the morning and then 
uh, at nighttime, get ready for bed and unpack it all over again. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm glad you went there, Claudia, because I, I, I was curious about some of the first things you would have noticed once you arrived. I mean, does that stack up to what you saw? Mariah? Yeah, so I didn't actually visit the 12th district, but from, you know, what Tessa kind of gathered, there were so many kids, and the volunteers we heard from in our story um, were struck by the families. There were kids playing with toy cars, a kid playing with a ball, um, people, you know, sweeping, just keeping their tent area tidy and organized, and then also just, you know, gathering for the day, um, talking, playing music on their phone, kind of commiserating. Um, People, what Tessa reported was that people who are staying in tents, they feel a certain amount of freedom where they're able to go and look for work. So one migrant Tessa spoke to wakes up at five in the morning and, and starts to go look for work and for a job for the day. Um, whereas people staying in the police district station might not feel like they have that freedom because they're waiting for city buses to come and pick them up to go to a shelter. So at any given moment, you know, they could have a chance to get to a shelter yeah. and they don't want to miss that opportunity. So it, it restricts their, you know, freedom of movement throughout the day. What was your, your day like, Krista? Like, uh, did you start early and late yeah. with new life? Yep. So I, I started around nine. Um, I too saw a lot of families. So what I did, the first thing I did was um, I went with Janet Sandoval, who is a new life staffer. Um, she drove this really large van, like a 13 seater black unmarked van, we went to the ninth and the eighth police districts and brought migrants back um, to take showers. That was that was her goal for the morning. It was, it was like a two-hour drive. So I was wow. able to talk a lot with Janet about her own personal experience with this and what motivates her. Um, talked to migrants in the van about their journeys to Chicago. Um, saw a lot of families um, at um, the ninth and eighth. You know, we pulled up to the ninth district, for example, um, to Claudia's point, like the police station, everybody was outside and because it was so hot, they were all on the other side of the street sitting under the shade of trees. Um, and Janet, you know, got out of the van. She had on a mask like you were during COVID and just yeah. said, hey, who would like to come with me to take a shower? And only a few people came. Let's listen to a little bit of, of Janet here. I was praying for uh, a job like this to help others, like uh, to help the migrants. To I want people to see God in my face, you know that I can reflect his love for them. Yeah, Sandoval quit her UPS job, right, just to, to do this, to help migrants uh, through this nonprofit new life. And, and she seems and, and sounds very much like she's motivated by her faith. There were, yes, Janet and several other people at New Life, um, which, you know, also has a church, right? Um, yeah. They were very motivated by their faith. That was the main driver for them. And yeah, Janet did quit a job knowing that this job at New Life was only going to be potentially for two months. But she was just so driven by helping people in this way that, yeah, that's what she's doing. Mariah, how's the city working to move people out of these police stations? It's really difficult. More than 900 people are staying in police stations across the city right now. And the city, you know, has upped the urgency of getting people into shelters and out of police stations. But they, I mean, as far as I can tell, don't have an alternative to what police stations provide, which is yeah. kind of 24-hour staffing access in the lobby. You know, there's really no other city-run buildings that are open the same in the same way that police districts are. And so they're, but what their strategy is, is to open large congregate shelters. Um, and they're working on that. You know, they're in the process of trying to open five new city-run shelters and they want buildings that the city owns so that they can save on rent. Mm-hmm. And they are also trying to change the way that they staff shelters because 
they are spending, they have spent so much of the money they've gotten from the state and federal government and also that they've borrowed from the city mm-hmm. or used in city funds on staffing um, with a national staffing firm that was hired under the previous administration. And so they really want to pull away from that. They said the city cannot spend on staffing in this way and they want to rely on volunteer organizations and really build up like a from the ground infrastructure of nonprofits and other volunteer organizations that are local Mm -hmm. um, that can help staff these shelters. They have to get those those people, you know, kind of credentialed to work in in shelters. And so that's part of the overall strategy that they're working on now, because you can't open a bunch of shelters without having staff to to help. And so that's a big puzzle that they're trying to work out. But um, they are trying to move away from the emergency mode that the Lightfoot administration, the former Mayor Lori Lightfoot's administration was under. You know, they had to like just hit the ground running with all of this. And now they're really trying to move to a longer term strategy. Yeah. Adequate housing is one obvious need, For sure. uh, Claudia. I mean, let's talk about what else. What did you hear from Alderman uh, Sigcho Lopez? Well, the alderman said uh, the situation at hand was a failure of government to act in a coordinated way. He said that um, state and federal partners needed to stop playing politics with people's lives. And um, to Mariah's point, uh, he did He was very vocal in his um, criticism of Mayor Lori Lightfoot. He said he wrote her several letters and said that, you know, this issue is only going to get worse. And he said that she really dropped the ball and just kind of ignored it. And the city's in this weird transition period now with the new newly elected mayor, Brandon Johnson. Mm -hmm. And Byron seems pretty hopeful that um, he has the political will to kind of address this issue. Uh, He said that uh, Mayor Johnson actually visited the 12th District uh, police station uh, right after his inauguration. Um, But uh, the city has limited funds and uh, they also have limited authority and anything that goes through city council takes months. Um, Like he had mentioned, uh, the city council's housing committee had recently uh, approved uh, transitional housing, uh, uh, transit. turning a former hotel into temporary housing. Right. And I mean, that takes months to kind of get off the ground. And I said, so what uh, what are some more immediate ways that the city could do something? And he suggested, you know, we should really be holding CHA's feet to the fire, the city's public housing authority, um, that they already um, have thousands of units that they've promised and have not built yet. Mm. But that, you know, they should really be stepping up and helping the city find uh a temporary shelter for these people. Mariah, so many of the migrants that have arrived here, they're coming from very traumatizing situations. I want to go back to uh, what you mentioned earlier, you shadowing this woman, Joanna, and her caseworker. Uh, the caseworker was coaching her through the asylum process. Tell us a bit more about Joanna's story and, and what you learned about the process just by talking to her. Yeah, her journey, Joanna's journey to the U.S. has been years in the making. She had a really difficult childhood in Venezuela and Colombia. She was abused by her parents and um, then mistreated by the father of her three kids. And she kind of explained this to me, you know, talking through tears and also saying that she has a really difficult time opening up about these things. But opening up about these things is kind of exactly what she's tasked with doing now, that she is applying for asylum status in the U.S. because um, you have to basically share every single detail of your life on a form to send to a judge in the U.S. government. 
to kind of make your case for why you get to stay here. And so she was meeting with a citizenship attorney, Alexis Arandas-Alasco, um, at Instituto del Progreso. And, you know, Alexis was asking Joanna, like, what would happen if you go back to Venezuela? Do you feel like you'd be supported by the police there or protected by the police there? And Joanna kind of said, no, you know, I, I know of cases where you report things to the police, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not confident that I would be protected. And that's something that she'll have to prove um, legally if she wants to get asylum seeking status. And Alexis, the attorney said, sadly, so many people who are coming to the U.S. Um, as as you know, or coming to Chicago as part of this wave yeah. will not have a case um, for asylum and won't have even enough of a um, documented fear to where an attorney will feel comfortable taking that case. Mm. Like many people will be told by attorneys, I don't recommend you take this because, you know, from what I can see, you're going to get denied and, and then you get deported. So, yeah, let's hear from uh, the caseworker. Her name's Alexis Aranda Zalasco. And here she's talking a little bit about that emotional demand uh, that this work brings along with it. I want to say the words you want to hear, that in a year from now, you're going to be working and you're going to be a resident of the United States. But that's not the case. That's not something that I think I'll ever be able to say. Um with immigration laws in the U.S., but at least I can use my experience and, like, the human part of me to be, like, you know, I'm hearing your story. I'm going to prepare the case in the best way that I can. Um, So it feels good. It feels good, but it does feel sad to, like, look at them. And I have had clients say, like, what is the best way? I need to be able to work. Can you guarantee that? And I can't, unfortunately. Kristen, you went on ride-alongs with volunteers too, right? Did they express similar frustration? What did they have to say? Oh, uh, with the migrants you're talking about? Yeah. Referring to? Yeah. Well, I mean, at that point, we didn't get into if they were applying for asylum yet. Also, the people who I had met in the van, for example, and then back at New Life um, had only been here. One gentleman I met had only been here for two days and the other for a week. Um, It was really interesting, though, to see like how those two interacted. I I asked them, I said, have you guys been here for a long time together? Like, no, we met last night. Like, I just saw a lot of camaraderie among the migrants, um, a lot of sharing knowledge, helping each other, talking about like these really treacherous journeys. Um, Both of those men left children and their families behind in Venezuela Mm -hmm. because they thought it would be so risky to take them to Chicago. Both described um, seeing People who were dead in the jungle, mm. pregnant people. Wow. It was just pretty horrific. Um, and I had asked Janet, who was translating for me as we were driving to these police stations, right, to then take pe- people back for shelter or for showers, kind of what she thought of that. And and um, and she just, you know, was saying how kind of horrific these these stories have been that she hears. And and that, again, like she's very much motivated by motivated by her faith to to help out. Yeah. And uh, the the alderman. Claudia, I mean, he's, as you mentioned, had a lot of criticism for, for the especially the previous administration. Uh, the city we know has leaned heavily on volunteers or nonprofits, um, these faith-based organizations filling in all the gaps. We know that that's not a permanent solution. So, I mean, digging into his critique, I mean, what was he saying needs to happen now? Like, what, what exactly did he want his colleagues at city council to do immediately? I think his bigger message was not for uh, local leaders, And it was more about the federal government and state government saying that they really need to step up and work in a coordinated fashion. And that, um, you know, that's the only way that this issue is going to be resolved.
Yeah, it seems like everybody's all over the place. Um, it is hard to imagine what stability looks like, uh, Kristen, um, for, for these folks who are trying to get meals and, and showers and, and clothing. You can't work. I mean, tell us more about what you're hearing from from migrants when it comes to looking for work or, or waiting for the approval to work. I know, Mariah, those are direct conversations you had as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting to see the juxtaposition. We were based at the 12th District where people were just getting shoes, you know, their first pair of shoes in the U.S. And, and all of these things that need to happen in order to just, like, I don't want to say stop the bleeding, but like band-aid things that just need to like keep people alive for yeah. today, you know, food and water and shoes to walk in. And then, you know, I was down the street with Joanna who had gotten that help and who who has gotten so many things um, in the, you know, since she's been here in October, she got here in October. And since then, you know, she's gotten a caseworker. She has a one-on-one appointment. She has one-on-one appointments with her citizenship attorney. She has a house with rental assistance mm. um, on the south side of the city, southwest side, where she lives with another migrant single mother who she became close with on her journey to the U.S. And they work as a family unit and support their kids. And she found a factory job. Um, and so, like... She, in comparison to people who are sleeping in tents outside of a police district station, seems to have like a very stable foundation. And she's found so many of these things. But she, you know, is still living here illegally and or, you know, she's still living here hoping to get legal asylum status. And, you know, that is such a long road ahead. That could take five six years um, of just like meetings, appointments, court cases, talking to a judge, filling out forms, sharing the most traumatic details of your life in hope that, you know, someone will allow you to stay here and work here legally. And so even when you get to that point where so many people are trying to get to from like negative five and you get to zero, then you still have so much longer to go to find real stability to feel safe. And before we wrap, Kristen, I mean, after talking to folks like Janet Sandoval, for instance, right, what sense did you get about, like, what else is motivating them to continue to do this, to come out, take time out of their jobs, quit their jobs even, be away from their families and help? I mean, I think um, a lot of people, Janet included, who I talked to for the story, saw themselves and the people they were helping. Janet came from Mexico when she was about five years old. You know, she told me she didn't have like a treacherous journey, like the stories that she was translating for me in that van. Um, But that, you know, she was really motivated to help. Um, She grew up in Little Village. She just really felt like giving back. There was another woman who I talked to, Sonia Lopez, who I think we're going to hear from, um, who um, was a single mother and talked about the struggle of that. She has grandkids. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was with her in the basement of New Life, I saw these little kids come up to her and ask in Spanish, do you have shoes in my size? Like, she very much sees her grandkids in these children. Um, I was struck by how many families, like we've talked about that, how many families that we saw, how many very small children. And after hearing stories, you know, over this past year of how hard it was to get to Chicago, it just, it makes me really wonder about what those journeys were like for those small kids, for example. Mm, goodness. Kristen Schorch, Mariah Wolfel, and Claudia Morrell, they're WBEZ reporters, and you can read their latest story titled A Day with Chicago Migrants, Sleeping in Tents, Hoping for Progress. It's online at WBEZ.org right now. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
We've been talking with reporters who spent a day at one of the city's largest and busiest police stations, monitoring closely what it's been like for migrants who are sleeping outside. Now let's hear from Erica Viegas. She's a volunteer lead with the 8th Police District's police response team. Erica, what does a typical day look like for you and your team? Well, um, you know, uh, the last couple of days have had, have become uh, more active just because uh, the city has stopped providing um, uh, to breakfast and lunch um, and are only providing one hot meal a day through Shy Cares. And so a lot of volunteers that were kind of taking a break a little bit and spending time with our families and, and getting back to our normal lives have had to step up again to provide um, meals Um because if not, people would go without eating, um, you know, the entire day until dinner was delivered between 5 and 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from that, we are trying to prepare families for the new school year. We are handling medical emergencies. We are guiding people through um, filling out paperwork. We are just trying to meet their basic needs. It seems that um, we worked to a path of... Uh, Stopping some of this, and unfortunately, um, we've had an influx of um, families arrive at police stations as well, um, and we've seen an increase in child and children. Um, most or a lot of our South districts have as many children and adults, um, so half and half of the population, um, and so that has created, you know, other challenges as well. Yeah. We last talked to you at the end of May. What would you say have been some of the biggest changes since our last conversation? Well, meals stopped. Meals um, stopped from the city. And so this is a a really big call to action and opportunity for the city to step up and um, continue to help and bring much-needed assistance to our volunteers. We are going through our own trauma. We are going through our own financial crisis as well because we are spending money out of our own pockets every single day to provide wow. meals, medical help, uh, clothing, uh, transportation to hospitals, transportation to doctors. So it is a, a, a very big challenge that we have, have a, ahead of us. And we are hoping that um, we get more assistance because we are just normal Chicagoans. And um, there's been a push by the city to, to move people out of police stations. I'm curious from what you're seeing on the ground, how that's going. Like, How many people are you still seeing? Sleeping um, at the we police had stations. over 500. We have over. We had, as of yesterday, over 500 people at across police stations. Um, well, there are concerns. We have concerns that um, our families are not being moved. We have families that have been at police stations now two or three weeks. It's much challenging to move families into shelter. There are no uh, open shelters right now, as, as we have been told. Um, we are also worried that some of our shelters, uh, for example, Daily College, starts school very soon. And within probably the next two weeks, those families need to be moved somewhere else. So what's going to happen with those families, plus what's going to happen to the families that are currently at police stations? Mm -hmm. And you've talked a bit there, Erica, about just trying to make sure folks have enough food. What about clothes and showers? Yes, clothes right now. Unfortunately, some of our clothes um, is being thrown out so we can provide new clothes. We need access to laundromats. We need money to then wash clothes as well. And so several of the challenges that we have is some of these basic needs that we cannot catch up with, right? Um, People still need cell phones. People still need um, other things that are more important than washing clothes, and one of them is meals and shoes 
and medicine. And so we got to pick and choose sometimes as volunteers what we're going to provide for that week um, or those next couple of days. What are you most proud of that you've been able to do for migrants so far? Um, We've been able to keep them safe as as much as we um, can. We have been able to uh, feed um, hundreds. We've prepared hundreds and hundreds of meals throughout um, the city. We have been able to clothe people. We have been able to bring comfort and uh, and community. We've been able to assist in so many medical uh, needs that have risen over the last uh, four months. I've been volunteering now for four months. And so um, we're proud of all that, right? But this cannot fall on the shoulders of volunteers. We are tired. Um, this is, you know, the city that welcomes migrant families. Um, we need to collectively uh, do that, and we need our elected officials to step up and help our volunteers um, uh-huh. do more. You know, the past few weeks we've been seeing dangerous air quality here in the city from from wildfires in Canada. How are you helping migrants deal with this? Um, uh, a very unfortunate situation. Uh, another problem, right, as we kind of go along this yeah. journey, all these other issues arise, and we're not prepared for them, right, a lot of the times as volunteers. And so we hurried, um, uh, you know, the WhatsApp volunteer leads of what we're going to do. And so we called um, help from the city, and we called police stations to please allow our families to go in the buildings because a lot of them are still not allowed to have access um, to the interior of the police stations during the day. We distributed um, lots of masks. We couldn't get all N95 masks, so a lot of the families did just get a regular mask. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were able to do that in a very short period of time. You know, as you talk about the, the phone calls you've had to make, Erica, I know that there are several police response teams throughout the city and, and nonprofits who are doing similar work. What is the communication like between all of the partners, though, and what is working well, more importantly? Well, we have uh, all of our, most of our communication happens through WhatsApp. We now have become um, uh, really good at that. We have groups for just all the leaders, and we kind of come together when there is an issue that happens and arises. And then we've had some, we've made some progress um, with the city and its leaders communicating and helping us with some of the meals. Again, they're only providing one meal a day, and that's dinner. And so we still need more assistance, and we need um, uh, really the new administration to step up and help us with many more of the needs that are happening on a daily basis at our police stations. Erica, what motivates you to do this work? Well, my my grandparents came to this country um, about 48 years ago, and it was a different time as well, as I've spoken to my grandma and my aunt. Um, you know, people were able to get jobs much more easier. People were, uh, especially for us Mexicans, right, um, for me as a Mexican-American, mm-hmm. um, they usually came at home to a family member. And even if they had to sleep on the floor, that's not the situation that's happening with these migrant families coming from Venezuela, coming from uh, Colombia, from El Salvador. And so a lot of these families had no one to arrive um, to Chicago to have a helping hand. And so it's our responsibility as the children and relatives of people that have come to this country before us to um, stand up, to speak up, to support, um, because we know that these families are eager 
to have a better life for their children, for themselves. They're eager to work. They're eager to become part of this great country and this great city. And so they just need a little bit of helping hand to be able to do that. And so that's part of my motivation to be able to assist others in a time of need, because I know that uh, someone assisted my grandparents when they came to this country. You know, but you're also, you're interacting with folks who have experienced a lot of trauma, right? And and they're waiting months on end for housing and likely longer, as we've been talking about, for, for asylum applications to actually go through. That, to me, sounds like it could lead to, to burnout. So how are you personally handing, handling everything? Uh, most of our lead volunteers are absolutely burned out. Um, we, we talk about it. We're open about it. We're not uh, putting a Band-Aid over it. Um, so we are right now. Uh, I just came back from a vacation. Other leaders are on vacation, and we're helping and stepping in to help others when they uh, take some time off with their families, with their spouses. Um, because we know it's necessary, mm-hmm. um, but also the trauma that we are learning as we talk to families, right? We need um, to take a step back and uh, and make sure that we are taking care of ourselves because the trauma that our families are sharing with us is very heavy. Um, there's been many tears. There's been many challenges of volunteers, um, and, and, and we are cognizant of that, And uh, but mm-hmm. we focus on the, on the wins. We focus and we share the wins as well. And the, the tears, what are they expressing at, at that time? What is Well, right now, I just spoke to a family a couple of days ago. They lost their child on the way here. Um, oh, and they're goodness. trying to make the best of it um, in a new city with very little support, with sometimes if we don't take a meal, with no meal. And so just that, that's just one story out of hundreds of stories that we have um, of families. Um, I've never experienced a loss of a child, so it's hard for me to even... Um, you know, it can show um, some sort of support. Yeah. Um, we're empathetic to that situation, and we um, are there to talk to some of these challenges, but we're not professionals either. We're not healthcare professionals, right. and we're not mental health professionals. And just knowing that I can go home and be with my child is a blessing. Mayor Johnson released a plan at the end of June, and it lays out a migrant response. It includes a strategy of maintaining supply space and, and buying shelter sites to use you know, when needed that can serve as community hubs. So from your view, I mean, how could that be implemented the most effectively? And what else do you want to see from city government? We want to see people be moved out of police station. Um, that is a big, you know, big task, um, but that needs to happen especially now that the school year is approaching, families need to have access to be able to go to school and have children be able to shower and have, be able to have a meal and a good night's rest so they can start going to school. We need um, access to food, um, a, just a, a basic human need. People need, and the city needs to step up to provide three meals a day for folks. Um, we need access to showers. That is not happening once again. Um, there is some transportation between some sites. But the police stations are having difficulty having um, getting people uh, access to showers. So mm-hmm. we need that as well. Um, we need to increase our medical uh, supplies and our medical team so that families have access to a doctor and a nurse if they need so. Um, so those are some of our big asks. And then really supporting on some of these um, police station response teams and volunteers that have been doing it really alone um, for a very long time. And we've been able to manage so much. 
um, let's get together, let's have these conversations to be able to, to um, acknowledge the, the lack of response and how can we have uh, our elected officials step up and do better and do more. Erica Villegas is a volunteer lead at the 8th Police District. Thank you so much. This episode of Reset was produced by Maha Ahmed and Linnea Dominic, and it was edited by Dan Tucker and Ethan Schwab. Stay on top of the most important stories affecting our region by subscribing to the Reset podcast. Find us on your favorite podcast app and be sure to leave us a rating and review when you subscribe. That'll do it for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you again this afternoon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.